Section 9 of The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Laughs by Victor Hugo. Part 1, Book the First, Chapter 6. Struggle Between Death and Night. The child was before this thing, dumb, wondering, and with eyes fixed. To a man it would have been a gibbet, to the child it was an apparition. Where a man would have seen a corpse, the child saw a specter. Besides, he did not understand. The attractions of the obscure are manifold. There was one on the summit of that hill. The child took a step, then another. He ascended, wishing all the while to descend, and approached, wishing all the while to retreat. Bold yet trembling, he went close up to survey the specter. When he got close under the gibbet, he looked up and examined it. The specter was tarred. Here and there it shone. The child distinguished the face. It was coated over with pitch, and this mask, which appeared viscous and sticky, varied its aspect with the night shadows. The child saw the mouth, which was a hole, the nose, which was a hole, the eyes, which were holes. The body was wrapped and apparently corded up in coarse canvas soaked in naphtha. The canvas was moldy and torn. A knee protruded through it. A rent disclosed the ribs, partly corpse, partly skeleton. The face was the color of earth. Slugs wandering over it had traced across it vague ribbons of silver. The canvas glued to the bones showed in reliefs like the robe of a statue. The skull, cracked and fractured, gaped like a rotten fruit. The teeth were still human, for they retained a laugh. The remains of a cry seemed to murmur in the open mouth. There were a few hairs of beard on the cheek. The inclined head had an air of attention. Some repairs had recently been done. The face had been tarred afresh, as well as the ribs and the knee which protruded from the canvas. The feet hung out below. Just underneath, in the grass, were two shoes, which snow and rain had rendered shapeless. These shoes had fallen from the dead man. The barefooted child looked at the shoes. The wind, which had become more and more restless, was now and then interrupted by pauses which foretell the approach of a storm. For the last few minutes it had altogether ceased to blow. The corpse no longer stirred. The chain was as motionless as a plumb line. Like all newcomers into life, and taking into account the peculiar influences of his fate, the child no doubt felt within him that awakening of ideas characteristic for early years, which endeavors to open the brain, and which resembles the pecking of the young bird in the egg, but all there was in his little consciousness just then was resolved into stupor. Excess of sensation has the effect of too much oil and ends by putting out thought. A man would have put himself questions. A child put himself none. He only looked. The tar gave the face a wet appearance. Drops of pitch congealed in what had once been the eyes produced the effect of tears, However, thanks to the pitch, the ravage of death, if not annulled, was visibly slackened and reduced to the least possible decay. That which was before the child was a thing of which care was taken. The man was evidently precious. They had not cared to keep him alive, 
but they cared to keep him dead. The gibbet was old, worm-eaten, although strong, and had been in use many years. It was an immemorial custom in England to tar smugglers. They were hanged on the seaboard, coated over with pitch, and left swinging. Examples must be made in public, and tarred examples last longest. The tar was mercy. By renewing it, they were spared making too many fresh examples. They placed gibbets from point to point along the coast, as nowadays they do beacons. The hanged man did duty as a lantern. After his fashion, he guided his comrades, the smugglers. The smugglers from far out at sea perceived the gibbets. There is one, first warning, another, second warning. It did not stop smuggling, but public order is made up of such things. The fashion lasted in England up to the beginning of this century. In 1822, three men were still seen to be hanging in front of Dover Castle. But, for that matter, the preserving process was employed not only with smugglers. England turned robbers, incendiaries, and murderers to the same account. Jack Painter, who set fire to the government storehouses at Portsmouth, was hanged and tarred in 1776. L'Abbé Coyer, who describes him as Jean Le Pintrois, saw him again in 1777. Jack Painter was hanging above the ruin he had made and was retarred from time to time. His corpse lasted, I had almost said lived, nearly fourteen years. It was still doing good service in 1788. In 1790, however, they were obliged to replace it by another. The Egyptians used to value the mummy of a king. A plebeian mummy can also, it appears, be of service. The wind, having great power on the hill, had swept it all of its snow. Herbage reappeared on it, interspersed here and there with a few thistles. The hill was covered by that close short grass which grows by the sea, and which causes the tops of cliffs to resemble green cloth. Under the gibbet, on the very spot over which hung the feet of the executed criminal, was a long and thick tuft, uncommon on such poor soil. Corpses, crumbling there for centuries past, accounted for the beauty of the grass. Earth feeds on man. A dreary fascination held the child. He remained there open-mouthed. He only dropped his head a moment when a nettle, which felt like an insect, stung his leg. Then he looked up again, and he looked above him at the face which looked down on him. It appeared to regard him the more steadfastly because it had no eyes. It was a comprehensive glance, having an indescribable fixedness in which there were both light and darkness, and which emanated from the skull and the teeth as well as the empty arches of the brow. The whole head of a dead man seems to have vision, and this is awful. No eyeball, yet we feel we are looked at. A horror of worms. Little by little the child himself was becoming an object of terror. He no longer moved. Torpor was coming over him. He did not perceive that he was losing consciousness. He was becoming benumbed and lifeless. Winter was silently delivering him over to night. There is something of the traitor in winter. The child was all but a statue. The coldness of stone was penetrating his bones. Darkness, that reptile, was crawling over him. The drowsiness resulting from snow creeps over a man like a dim tide. The child was being slowly invaded by that stagnation resembling that of the corpse. He was falling asleep. On the hand of sleep is the finger of death. The child felt himself seized by that hand. He was on the point of falling under the gibbet. He no longer knew whether he was standing upright. 
the end always impending, no transition between to be and not to be, the return into the crucible, the slip possible every minute, such is the precipice which is creation. Another instant, the child and the dead, life in sketch and life in ruin, would be confounded in the same obliteration. The specter appeared to understand, and not to wish it. Of a sudden, it stirred. One would have said it was warning the child. It was the wind beginning to blow again. Nothing stranger than this dead man in movement. The corpse at the end of the chain, pushed by the invisible gust, took an oblique attitude, rose to the left, then fell back, reascended to the right, and fell and rose with slow and mournful precision. A weird game of seesaw. It seemed as though one saw in the darkness the pendulum of the clock of eternity. This continued for some time. The child felt himself waking up at the sight of the dead. Through his increasing numbness he experienced a distinct sense of fear. The chain at every oscillation made a grinding sound with hideous regularity. It appeared to take breath and then to resume. This grinding was like the cry of a grasshopper. An approaching squall is heralded by sudden gusts of wind. All at once the breeze increased into a gale. The corpse emphasized its dismal oscillations. It no longer swung. It tossed. The chain which had been grinding now shrieked. It appeared that this shriek was heard. If it was an appeal, it was obeyed. From the depths of the horizon came the sound of a rushing noise. It was the sound of wings. An incident occurred, a stormy incident, peculiar to graveyards and solitudes. It was the arrival of a flight of ravens. Black flying specks pricked the clouds, pierced through the mist, increased in size, came near, amalgamated, thickened, hastening towards the hill, uttering cries. It was like the approach of a legion. The winged vermin of the darkness alighted on the gibbet. The child, scared, drew back. Swarms obey words of command. The birds crowded on the gibbet. Not one was on the corpse. They were talking among themselves. The croaking was frightful. The howl, the whistle, and the roar are signs of life. The croak is a satisfied acceptance of putrefaction. In it you fancy you hear the tomb breaking silence. The croak is night-like in itself. The child was frozen even more by terror than by cold. Then the ravens held silence. One of them perched on the skeleton. This was a signal. They all precipitated themselves upon it. There was a cloud of wings. Then all their feathers closed up, and the hanged man disappeared under a swarm of black blisters, struggling in the obscurity. Just then the corpse moved. Was it the corpse? Was it the wind? It made a frightful bound. The hurricane, which was increasing, came to its aid. The phantom fell into convulsions. The squall, already blowing with full lungs, laid hold of it and moved it about in all directions. It became horrible. It began to struggle. An awful puppet with a gibbet chain for a string. Some humorist of night must have seized the string and been playing with the mummy. It turned and leapt as if it would fain dislocate itself. The birds, frightened, flew off. It was like an explosion of all those unclean creatures. Then they returned, and a struggle began. The dead man seemed possessed with hideous vitality. The winds raised him as though they meant to carry him away. He seemed struggling and making efforts to escape, but his iron collar held him back. The birds adapted themselves to all his movements, retreating, then striking again, scared but desperate. On one side a strange flight was attempted, on the other the pursuit of a chained man. The corpse, impelled by every spasm of the wind, had shocks, starts, fits of rage. It went, it came, it rose, it fell, driving back the scattered swarm. 
The dead man was a club, the swarms were dust. The fiercest sailing flock would not leave their hold and grew stubborn. The man, as if maddened by the cluster of beaks, redoubled his blind chastisement of space. It was like the blows of a stone held in a sling. At times the corpse was covered by talons and wings, then it was free. There were disappearances of the horde, then sudden furious returns, a frightful torment continuing after life was past. The birds seemed frenzied. The air-holes of hell must surely give passage to such swarms. Thrusting of claws, thrusting of beaks, croakings, rendings of shreds, no longer flesh, creakings of the gibbet, shudderings of the skeleton, jingling of the chain, the voices of the storm and tumult. What conflict more fearful? A hobgoblin warring with devils, a combat with a specter. At times, the storm redoubling its violence, the hanged man revolved on his own pivot, turning every way at once towards the swarm, as if he wished to run after the birds. His teeth seemed to try and bite them. The wind was for him, the chain against him. It was as if black deities were mixing themselves up in the fray. The hurricane was in the battle. As the dead man turned himself about, the flock of birds wound round him spirally. It was a whirl and a whirlwind. A great roar was heard from below. It was the sea. The child saw this nightmare. Suddenly, he trembled in all his limbs. A shiver thrilled his frame. He staggered, tottered, nearly fell, recovered himself, pressed both hands to his forehead as if he felt his forehead a support, then haggard, his hair streaming in the wind, descending the hill with long strides. His eyes closed, himself almost a phantom. He took flight, leaving behind that torment in the night. End of section 9